Well, it is good to be in the Lord's house today, and uh, we're looking forward to diving into the scriptures together and um, expounding through Ephesians. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter number 4 to this morning, and uh, we're resuming our exposition. We've been going through, and we took a little break through the uh, Christmas season, but uh, I'm excited to dive back in and uh, get back into where we picked up, pick up where we left off. And uh, we're going to be in Ephesians 4, and our, our text for today is going to be verse 25 down through verse 27. Now, I originally began laying out my sermon and planning it out to go all the way through verse 32, and by the time I got through these, through, these three verses, I thought, They'll, they're going to fire me if I keep going. Uh, so I decided to break it into a, a part one and a part two uh, for all of our sake, I guess. And um, we're going to be looking at living out who you are. Living out who you are. And uh, this is what we look at with the Christian life is that we've been changed. Uh, we are no longer the old person, but we have a responsibility to live out our new person, who we are in Christ. And so uh, that's what Paul focuses on through this passage. And as you recall, the uh, latter half of Ephesians is very much applicational. It's very much practical. Uh, things that are... are Uh, imperative for us as Christians to apply and to live out. We have a responsibility with that. And so let's read our text this morning, and uh, we'll come through this together. Uh, Verse 25 of Ephesians 4, Paul writing says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. We think about living out who we are. Who are we as Christians? Well, to know who we are, uh, presently we have to also remember who we were before we became Christians. Who were we? Well, Paul makes that unmistakable in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, and as well also in this chapter Chapter 4, verse 17 through 19, who were we? We were depraved sinners, we were blind in our darkness, living out the natural evils of our own hearts. We just went with the flow of what sin was, no matter what way that came about uh, in us and through us and around us. But then Christ found us, and when Christ finds someone, He changes them from the inside out. A sinner who meets Christ, meaning that they have been born again and have faith in Christ alone for salvation, they are no longer the old person that they used to be. So who are we as Christians then? We are children of God. The Bible gives so many descriptions of of us. We are chosen and called. We are redeemed and regenerated. We are justified. We are sanctified. We're headed towards being glorified. We've been cleansed, we've been forgiven, we have been made into a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us. And if this is true, or should I say since this is true, since we've been made new, isn't it true also that that newness should be evident in the Christian life? Absolutely it does. What did Jesus say? A tree is known by its what, church? Its fruits. 
So we think about the Christian life and experience. Is the Christian experience only an internal reality, or is it the change, or is the change we've experienced meant to affect our lives in all areas? And this is the point Paul is going to be making, that we as Christians have a practical responsibility in our Christian lives to live in a way that reflects the change in us. Now, just to review for a moment, verse 22 through 24 is where Paul picks up from this. Remember what he told them. He gives them the command to put off what? Your old self and to put on the new self that is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, here's where we see this tension, right? Though we have been made new in Christ, the old self, our sinful fallen humanity, it still hangs around. It's called the flesh, right? We read through Scripture and it's called the flesh. We're at war with that flesh. But the new self here, we find it, which is our new nature in Christ, we are called to put on or uh, practice that which reflects Christ in us. This is Christian living 101. So a Christian has been so affected by Christ that it is evident in their life that they are not like the rest of the godless culture around them. Friend, if there is no difference in you from the rest of the world, there's a major problem. You are different if you're truly born again. So what does that look like for the Christian? Paul makes it clear in this passage before us that there is a remove and replace principle to the Christian life. And he gives some actual specific things that we ought to remove and replace. You see, it is not enough just to try and remove things. You've got to replace it with the right things. You can't just try to stop sinning. What are you going to replace it with? You've got to replace it with what is right, right? Now, in the gardening world, we could illustrate it this way. If you want to plant and cultivate a beautiful flower bed, what must you first do? You must remove or pull up the weeds that are there. And then you also must plant flowers. You can't just remove the weeds and expect a flower bed to grow. You've got to plant the flowers, right? And so even after you plant the flowers, there's, there's still a continual process of pulling up weeds uh, and trying to keep it cultivated. And the Christian life was a lot like that, except what we find here, it's a simultaneous event in replacing certain things by, uh, remove, when removing at the same time. So you'll find these specifics that Paul brings forth to us, and I'll point out the first two this morning. First two, very plain, very practical, and you may think it's even just elementary and very simple. But bear in mind that these are realities that we have to wrestle with. Number one is this in our notes. We must replace falsehood with speaking the truth. We must replace falsehood with speaking the truth. Now, here's the reality. The old nature was inherently deceptive. Deceptive. Now, you don't even have to work at trying to be deceptive. It comes natural to us comes natural to the human life. Now, notice that he begins in verse 25. He says, therefore. Therefore always means that, that he's building on what he's just said. The clear connection. And based on what he said about putting off the old self and putting on the new self, he says, put it, having put away falsehood in verse 25. Now, what is falsehood? Well, in simple terms, it's lying. It's lying. 
Now, you could describe it as being deceptive, being untruthful, lacking integrity. Uh, however, whatever form of deception you want to mention, it falls under this umbrella, under this category. There are many in this world who routinely lie in various ways and who are good at practicing falsehood. There's some people who are so good at lying, they ought to get paid for doing it. I mean, they're just professional. They've made it part of their life. That's how the lost world operates. Now, why do they do this? Well, it's their nature to do so. Now, understand that this nature to lie, it was first manifested by Satan long ago. Long ago. And I want to tie this to a little bit of origins. Do you remember what Satan told Eve in the Garden of Eden? compared to what God had told Eve and Adam in the Garden of Eden. God had placed the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden. He said, don't eat it lest you what, church? Die, right? You'll surely die. But if you go on to read in, uh, in, in Genesis, you'll find that Satan says an outright lie in Genesis chapter 3. And what does he tell them? He says, you will not surely die. That's not just a twisting of the Word of God, that's an outright denial and contradiction to the Word of God, right? And so from that lie, mankind fell into his own sinful depravity, bringing upon him his own nature of lying. He's taken on the same form of practice that the devil had in the beginning. Now we see a direct connection that Jesus lays out when he's speaking to the Jewish leaders. John 8, 44, he says to them, they think that they're children of God, but here's what he tells them. He says, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in what? The truth. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the, what? Father of lies. So so you understand this this problem with lying and deception. It is grounded uh, in, in satanic influence, and by mankind's own fall into sin, mankind naturally lies. He's naturally deceptive. It is a pervasive sin among humanity. It continues in varying degrees, from individuals to companies to governments to nations. You think everybody's honest with each other? Absolutely not. They're all out to uh, get their own progress and gain and keep themselves from guilt. Lying is a perpetual issue in our world. Now, any and all falsehood, understand, it is a mark of the old nature. Now, you can take this even deeper. It goes deeper than just telling an outright lie. It includes all forms of falsehood, such as intentionally exaggerating things. You ever been talking to somebody and they're telling you a story, but you know that there's no way what they're saying is actually true. They're just an exaggerator. And some people do that, you know, because they like attention and whatnot or whatever. But it's still wrong to do that. Some uh, some forms of falsehood would be cheating in school or on your tests or on your homework. Guilty as charged. What young guy hasn't, right? Growing up, I I felt like I was the dumbest guy in the room, so I asked for help. I've repented since then, by the way. 
just pointing that out for our young people. Don't cheat. Cheating on your taxes, telling a half-truth without the whole truth. There's all sorts of examples that we can look at that dive into falsehood. And Paul says we are to put away all forms of falsehood. We are to be truthful people. But here's the reality. This is our nature. And if it's not kept in check, you'll just get better at it. You grow at getting good at sin. Usually when Jubilee and David has done something wrong, kids make great illustrations. We all know that, right? If David is crying and he's coming into the room because he's hurt, Jubilee races him to get to the room where we are first. And you know why she does that? Because she wants to control the narrative. Control the narrative, and what is the purpose of controlling the narrative? It is to presume her innocence that she has not actually done. It's not as bad as David's making it out to be. Now, sometimes it is that way because David cries over a lot of things. But then there's other times where Jubilee will intentionally try to cover up her guilt and control the narrative. It is a form of deception. I didn't teach her that, all right? Maybe Bethany did, not sure. But I didn't teach her that. Bethany didn't have to teach her that either. It comes natural to us. And it's a very subtle thing. Now, why is it that mankind lies? Well, I just gave you one example. Usually, it is either to protect themselves from some form of guilt, which only increases the guilt by lying. Also, people tend to lie to promote themselves in some way to either make themselves seem better than they actually are or to bring themselves some kind of gain. Those are reasons people lie. Now, I've had friends in the past who were pathological liars. Didn't realize it at first. But little by little, lies get found out. They don't stay buried. You pick up when someone is being deceptive. And eventually, those lies came out to hurt them, not only ending friendship, but bringing also other forms of punishment and pain upon themselves. Proverbs twenty two seventeen: bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be full of gravel. When someone lies in deception, they think they've got away with it for a moment, but ultimately in the end, lies never win. Because God is a God of truth. Now, why is falsehood so serious? I mean, why is this such a big deal, right? I mean, everybody lies a little bit. Why is this such a big deal? Well, we could list many things, but let me give you four quick examples of reasons why. Uh, Here's number one. Uh, Lying is, this is really hard, lying is sin. That's right. That's why. Lying is sin. All sin, in some form or another, is a breaking of God's law. 1 John 3, 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is breaking the law of God. And so this practice of lying is a breaking of the law of God. Now, what law in specific does lying break? Exodus twenty sixteen: you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. That is deception. That is lying. One of the Ten Commandments. We're well, very familiar with that. Now, here's the reality, Christian. Just because you are saved by grace does not mean that you get to become lawless. Now, there are a lot of Christians that think, well, I'm saved by grace, I can just do whatever I want. Wrong! Paul said, God forbid 
that we live in such a way in Romans chapter 6. So, so understand that, that, that lying was a sin under the old covenant. It's a sin under the new covenant. It's always going to be a sin, a breaking of the law of God. So this is one reason falsehood is so serious. It is sin. Number two is this. It is hated by God. Hated by God. Now, there's all sorts of sins that we could list, but then there's some sins in Scripture that is explicitly stated. God says, I hate that. I despise it. Now, He despises all sin. Don't get me wrong. But we ought to take note where Scripture speaks loudly. Proverbs 6, 16 through 17. These six things does the Lord hate. Seven are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes. That's pride. But the second one on the list is a lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood, and there's a few others there, but I I didn't need to go into those for time's sake. Second on the list of the things God hates is a lying tongue. Solomon also writes this, Proverbs 12, 22, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully or truthfully are His delight. Truth, friend. You see how God hates lying. Why else is lying so serious? Here's the reality. It categorizes those who are unregenerate and will face eternal judgment. Listen to what it says in Revelation 21.8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters... Now, we look at all those other sins. Man, those are the big sins, right? Those are the big ones. Don't do those. But notice what it mentions next. And all liars. And all liars. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Lying is categorically describing those who are unregenerate and lost. That's what Christian is not to be living out. But here's the fourth thing that lying does. It's why it's so serious. It damages others and completely hinders relationships. Psalm 101.7, the psalmist said, No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. After all, who wants a liar for a friend? You can't trust them. Lies damage relationships. They destroy relationships. And so this, is exact, this leads into exactly why Paul is so pressing on this as a matter for Christian. It's noticed with me in letter B. Not only the old nature is inherently deceptive, but the new nature produces truthfulness. This is what we ought to be, is people who speak what? The truth. The truth. Verse 25, what does he say? Let each one of you speak the truth to his neighbor. Now, this is a quotation in reference to God's word through Zechariah. Zechariah 8.16, God says through the prophet, These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. The Christian must speak truth instead of falsehood, lies, inception. This is what the new nature produces. This is what you replace falsehood with. Now, you may have been a habitual liar before your conversion. But guess what, Christian? Just because you got saved doesn't mean that tendency to want to lie just instantly disappears. You're called to put that to death and be truthful. Be truthful in all of your ways and in all of your words. 
See, you don't just quit lying, you replace lying with truth. Speaking the truth is what is right. And so this remove and replace principle, understand, it's a simultaneous reality in the Christian life and experience. Now, we recall that liars were listed with the category of those who are unregenerate, headed to eternal judgment. But Scripture puts the saints in a different category. Praise God for that. Here's the category of the Christian. 1 Corinthians 6.11, after Paul had just listed a big bunch of sins and lifestyles, he says, such were some of you, past tense. I'm thankful for that. Such were some of you. Now, who are they now? Look what he says. You're washed. You are sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So, So this is what Paul is saying. Believers, You used to be in that category. You're not there anymore. If you're not there anymore, don't live like you're still there anymore. We're to live as as we truly are in this new category of being regenerated people who have Christ living in us. We put on the new self. We do what is right in the sight of God, what is truthful. And friend, if anyone in this world ought to be truthful, it ought to be Christians. Christians are are to be the truthful people. Because you can't depend on the unregenerate world to always be truthful. Christians are called to be truthful. That doesn't mean everybody out there perpetually lies. Don't mistake me. There there are people out there that are unregenerate. They tell the truth. That doesn't mean they're not prone to lying either. The Christian is called to do this. Now Paul takes us further into the implications of being truthful in verse 25. Notice this. Let each one speak the truth with his neighbor. Now, here comes the question, who is my neighbor? Well, our neighbor, in a more broader sense, is anyone really within our sphere of influence or connection. It could be your family, your co-worker, your, uh, the unknown citizen checking you out at the store. Uh, your neighbor is anyone within your sphere of influence. You go read the, uh, the story of, the, uh, uh, of uh, where Jesus was asked that question uh, about the, um, the good Samaritan who helped the, the stranger on the way. So who is my neighbor? He was trying to get away out of helping him, right? That's very plain from that. But here's the specific aim in the context of Paul here because there's a local church application. He qualifies who our neighbor is in this passage by saying, for we are members one of another. We are members one of another. Now, I'm not members one of another of another random person out on the road. I am members one of another of everyone in Christ here. I'm members one. We're we're members together. We're linked together inseparably by Christ. This is is one of the, the themes that he mentioned throughout Ephesians 4, that we are unified together in Christ. Now notice this. He is referencing Christians and their uh, association together. Look at verse 16 if you go backwards. Notice what he says about the body. He says, from whom the whole body, talking about the church, joined and held together by every point with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Do you see a unity there? Absolutely you do. You understand that believers are one body in Christ linked together, especially those who are of the same local church. Our believers in this church were neighbors together. We're neighbors together. Now, how should we treat our neighbors who are so close to our lives? Well, Paul said in the same form of context, Romans 15 too, about the local church and 
members together. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. We are to seek the good of our fellow brother and sister in Christ. We're called to build each other up. Now, let me ask you this. What kind of an effect does lying, deceit, and hypocrisy, and all other forms of falsehood have on a church body? What kind of effect does that have on a church body? Nothing but damage and hurt. You see, speaking truth must be the continual practice of all believers, no matter where they are. We have to be truthful no matter where we are in life. But there is a specific implication to its importance among those in the church. This is why Paul tells the church, even in other letters, Colossians 3.9, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Because here's the reality, Christians. Speaking truth strengthens unity while speaking falsehood weakens unity. If the people of the church practice falsehood, the element of trust is broken. If one person goes around lying, guess what? Others aren't going to trust that person. There's a divide there. There's there's a disconnect there. How How can anybody, any body of believers be unified and strong if there's a lack of trust? Now think of it in a more intimate way. Think about how strong, how strong is a marriage when a husband and wife has continually lied about things. That marriage is weak. You may think it's strong, but if you lie to your spouse, that is weakening your marriage. That's just how it goes. It, it, it is weak. That must be fixed or it will break. And the same applies to the local church. Listen to the description of the people of Judah in the days of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 9.5, he says, Everyone deceives his neighbor, and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity. Now, how many of us remember how it turned out for Judah in Jeremiah? They were destroyed. They were absolutely destroyed. And I want you to understand that falsehood will destroy a church. It will destroy your life. It will destroy marriage. So this remove and replace principle, understand, it may seem very basic and very elementary, but it is an essential practice for us in the church that we put away all forms of falsehood and that we are truthful people, people who can be trusted by our loved ones, by our church family, and by those in our community. We must replace falsehood with truth. And you'll find that as you look at most of these, they are, they are very much relational in the, what Paul is bringing out here. Notice with the number two. And lastly, but don't get excited because there's only two points of the whole message. You, you got off easy this morning. You usually have three. Number two, replace sinful anger with righteous anger. Replace sinful anger with righteous anger. Now, this is another one we, we need to pay attention to in our Christian life. Remember the old nature. Letter A, the old nature lets anger breed sin. The old nature lets anger breed sin. Now, we, we think of anger, and it has great danger that comes along with it. Uh, this is one that's greatly needed for us. Anger is very common and must be properly dealt with. Now, notice in verse 26 what Paul says. He says, be angry and do not sin. Now, if Paul gives a command to not sin with anger, that means the opposite is true. That anger can be sinful and lead into other sins. In fact, anger leads to many sins. 
many people, because of their anger, uncontrolled anger, have said things that were corrupt and hurtful and they could never take back. Many people, because of anger, have made decisions that were irrevocable, irreversible. Many have, because of anger, have decided they're going to plunge themselves into drunkenness or drugs or some other thing to try to get rid of what they're feeling. Many, because of anger, have gone on to murder someone, killing them. Many, in uncontrolled anger, have brought great injury even upon themselves. I recently saw a video on, on I don't remember where it was, where some, some social media platform. There's, there's all kinds of videos, you know, with the dash cams now with road rage. You ever seen road rage? And this guy, he got so mad at the guy in front of him, he comes up behind, on the lane next to him, and he's got his window down looking at him and, you know, yelling his profanity and, and giving him some lovely signs, hand gestures and such, and uh, instantly he rear-ends a guy right in front of him. Bang. His anger totally blinded him, caused him to hurt himself, total his car, maybe even someone else. Many examples we could use of that nature. But here's the reality. Anger, unchecked anger, brings out sin. Proverbs 29, 22, A man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. One given to anger causes much transgression. Now, do we have any examples of what happens when a person responds in anger? Well, think about biblically. Think of Cain killing his brother. What led him to do such a thing? Well, we know in the story that he had his offering rejected by the Lord, and we read in Genesis 4, 6, the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? What do we find in this passage? Two verses later, Cain and Abel in the field, and he kills his brother. Now, we're not told the exact nature of all that took place in that field or what was said, but I can tell you one thing. Anger leads to murder. Anger evidently gripped hold of Cain and had an effect on him killing his own brother. Think also of Moses who struck the rock when he was told to speak to it. Now, it's no secret as you read through the the wilderness wanderings, Moses had a little bit of a temper on him. He had a lot of good qualities, but he did have a temper. And when Moses was told to speak to the rock and that water would come out, instead, what did he do? He struck the rock twice. Why did Moses strike the rock in disobedience to God's command? Well, if you read that passage, the people had provoked him once again. Now, it's not explicitly stated that he was angry that did that, but we can assume and and, and, uh, imply that. I think it's very plain that anger brought great consequence. See, anger is a reality that every human must deal with, whether you're a Christian or not. Anger is part of human emotion, part of humanity. You're going to deal with anger in some way. It's going to come to you. The difference is for the unregenerate world, anger is most often a sinful form of anger that leads to other sins because of that anger. John MacArthur commenting on this passage says, Anger that is sin, on the other hand, is anger that is self-defensive and self-serving, that is resentful of what is done against oneself. And that is very true. Now, here's the reality. Christians can also give heed to sinful anger that will lead them into other sins. But the difference is the Christian has a new nature that enables them to properly put anger in its right place. 
to process anger in a godly manner and even have a godly form of anger, as we'll look at in a moment. So we see with this, the old nature lets anger breed sin. But here's where Paul is giving them this imperative, this positive command. The new nature brings anger under control. The new nature brings anger under control. Now notice he says again, be angry and do not sin. Now this is not a command, go look for something to make you upset and then try not to sin with it. It's rather be understood, in being angry, don't sin. You're going to get angry at some point, but don't sin. Don't sin. You see, the Christian is not to behave like the unregenerate in dealing with anger. The anger a Christian may experience is not to be sinful anger or lead them into other sins. Now, the word anger here, understand, it it is not a momentary outward boiling over rage or inward seething resentment, but rather a deep-seated, determined, and settled conviction. As seen in this passage, its New Testament use can represent an emotion, good or bad, depending on motive and purpose. That's John MacArthur on that particular word for anger. So so the point here is not to let anger continue and cause sin. Once again, Paul's quoting the Old Testament. Psalms chapter 4 and verse 4, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your hearts on your beds and be silent, say law. This is the principle. Bring anger to its proper place. Don't allow yourself to have this sinful anger that goes unchecked and uncontrolled. Now, here's what I want us to understand about this. Some anger is inherently sinful because of its motive and purpose. But there's also anger that is not in itself sinful. There is an unrighteous form of anger, and there is a righteous form of anger. How do you know this? Well, Let me give you an example. Scripture in many places testifies to the anger of the Lord. Psalm chapter 90, verse 11. We just looked at this Wednesday night, but I'll quote it to you. Who considers, Moses writing this, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Now, since God is holy and perfect and sinless beyond words can describe, how could God possess anger if all forms of anger were We're sinful. Not all forms of anger are sinful. The Lord possesses a righteous and holy form of anger. He is angry with the wicked every day. That's what Scripture teaches us. He is angry with the wicked every day. He hates sin. He hates sin. Do you know what the Bible calls upon us as Christians to feel about sin. Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Not hate people, but hate evil. Hate sin. So you understand that the Lord possesses a righteous anger. He is angry with the wicked. We see this in Jesus During his earthly life, the hypocrisy and hardness of heart of the religious leaders made him angry. Listen to Mark 3 and verse 5. And he looked around at them with anger. 
grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. They were angry that they were so so proud and hypocritical that they thought it was wrong for Jesus to heal this man because it was a Sabbath day. He was angry at their hypocrisy. His righteous angry at another point led him in John 2.15 to make himself a whip and drive out the money changers out of the temple with a whip. Now, that's not the loving picture of Jesus that everybody loves today, is it? That's the Jesus people reject. Oh, Jesus would never do that. He did. He is angry with sin. People are so confused about what the true gospel is today. Oh, God's love, love, love. You understand that the Bible says God is love very few times in the Scripture, but there is hundreds of times where it says God is holy, holy, holy. You understand that God is angry at sin. You can't get away from that. His judgment will come upon sin. And so we see this through the person of, person of Christ in His own ministry manifesting a righteous and holy Anger towards this, towards of sin, kinds of sin. And here's the truth. Christians should have a righteous anger as Jesus did. Now, I'm not telling you to get some cords and start driving people out of church. Don't do that. Jesus can do that himself, and he did. He had the right. But here's what I find. Too many Christians are stoically indifferent about the things that should stir us up. We just go along for the ride in this evil world and act like it's not that big of a deal. You ought to be stirred in your spirit by some of the things that you see going on in our culture and nation. You ought not to be indifferent about it. Now here's an example. Acts 17, 16, Paul, when Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city was full of idols. He's looking around him at the gross idolatry of mankind and deep in him he is stirred to his core. It bothers him. Bothers him. Friend, when evil prevails... When justice is abandoned, when the truth is trampled, when the gospel is perverted, when God's name is blasphemed, we ought to be stirred by that. And that stirring ought to provoke us to being obedient to God and doing what God has prescribed in His Word to try to reach those people who have so so ingrained themselves in gross sin, which provoked that. The Christian life is never to be indifferent to such things. Here's what the psalmist wrote. Psalm 119.53, Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. See this? Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. We ought to be stirred by these things. Now, it is easy to hear the word anger and just automatically assume wrath and fury. That's not what we're talking about. Remember, when you get angry at uh, something you see that is sinful, and it doesn't mean that you, you pour out wrath. That's not your job. God's going to do that someday. Remember, this form of anger is a stirring in our hearts rooted in a deeply settled conviction. It is rooted in our zeal for the Lord. And our zeal for the Lord should consume us to have a righteous anger that is properly applied. Now, here's the opposite side of this coin. Come on down with me. 
At the same time, there must be great caution even with righteous anger. Listen to the words of the Puritan Thomas Manton. He spells this out well. He says, certainly, they are angry and sin not who are angry at nothing but sin. It is good when every passion serves the interests of religion. However, let me tell you, this being a fierce and strong motion of the Spirit, it must be used with great advice and caution. You see, even this kind of anger Paul is warning about. Be angry and sin not. Now, notice what he says in verse 26, the latter half of this verse. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. That's one of the worst things you can do is go to bed angry. Letting it seethe. Letting it sit there and sour and deepen in your heart and your mind. That's one of the worst things you can do. Be moved in a righteous way, but bring it under control in a righteous way. Why is that? Look at verse 27. Here's the reason. This is all tied together. And give no opportunity to the devil. Here's the reality. Whatever is begun for good, the devil loves to turn to evil. That's what he's done with everything. Whatever's meant for good, he loves to turn into evil. The best motivated anger can become sour and cause a Christian to do the wrong things with the right motive. Some Christians today I have seen, they become irate and even violent at the evil they see around them. Those that want to try and burn down abortion clinics. You understand, I absolutely with a holy hatred, hate abortion. And you should too. But the proper response is not to go burn down the building. The proper response is the gospel. That's the only right response. But there are Christians in our own society who have a a holy disposition towards evil, but they let that anger go unchecked, and they have given opportunity to the devil to absolutely destroy what they stand for. Their anger that was righteous in its motive became unrighteous in its methods. And there is nothing the devil would love more than to stain a righteous cause with unrighteous conduct because of uncontrolled anger. The longer you allow anger to fester in your spirit, no matter what kind it is, if it's sinful anger, you need to get rid of it immediately. And most most majority forms of anger that hit you, they're going to be coming to you in a sinful way. But the longer you allow anger, unrighteous or righteous, to fester in your spirit, the more you give an opportunity to the devil to capitalize on it. You're giving him opportunity, capitalization of it. Listen to Ecclesiastes 7.9. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Notice that word, lodges. What happens when you lodge somewhere? staying, you're hanging around, staying the night at a lodge, right, at a hotel. You're staying, you're hanging around. And Solomon says that anger lodges, it hangs around in the heart of fools. But in the heart of of the wise, it does not hang around. It does not hang around. 
A Christian is to have the wisdom not to let any form of anger lodge in their heart. And Charles Hodge, commenting on this, rightly says, anger when cherished, that's his word for lodging, taking hold of it, keeping it. Anger when cherished gives the tempter great power over us as it furnishes a motive to yield to his evil suggestions. So instead of losing control with anger, even if it is righteous in its motive, the Christian must yield himself to the Spirit and remember how he is to behave among the world. One final scripture and we're done. Romans 12. I want you to turn there with me and let's read this. Here I think we see some interconnection with our Christian responsibility and application. Romans 12, 17 through 21. Paul the Apostle says to these Christians, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Now, giving, repaying someone evil for evil is an expression of what? Anger. Well, they did this to me, I'm going to get them back. That's anger. Verse 18, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I believe this ties into what Paul is saying in Ephesians. This is the principle. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So all forms of anger, understand, they require a Christian response. Remove the form of corrupt anger, sinful anger. Replace it with a controlled, sinless form of anger, a righteous form of anger. So this is the Christian duty. So we think, who are we as Christians? Christian, you're a new creation in Christ with a new nature to live out. You are called to live out who you are. Live out who you are in Christ. Replace falsehood with truth and replace corrupt anger with righteous anger. So I challenge us, consider your own life today. Do either of these two points hit you? Do they hit you? And today, maybe you're a sinner and you realize it and you just you know that you're not in Christ. You know I've not been changed and made new. May I say to you today that Jesus alone is your salvation. You'll not find it anywhere other than looking and believing on Him. So I call on us as Christians, evaluate our life in light of what Paul has said, remove and replace. And if you don't know Christ today, understand Christ's blood on the cross and His resurrection, that is the only redemption for sinners. You can't do it on your own. He's the one that saves. Look to Him in faith. And turn to Him. Let's stand to our feet as we have prepared for a closing song. Father, we bow before You this morning and thank You, Lord, for this text. I'm thankful, Father, that You have inspired Your Word with words that cut to the very specifics of our heart. Not just generic, but You get into the 
nuts and bolts of what sin is, things that we wrestle with, things that we need to remove and replace them with. Lord, as we've looked at these two, Father, they're so plain before us, so fundamental. Falsehood abounds in various forms. We as Christians must remove that and replace it with truthfulness in all things. Unrighteous and unholy anger, it abounds. Something we wrestle with. Help us to replace that with a controlled and righteous form of anger that we not give opportunity to the devil, that we not allow ourselves to be led away into sin. Help us to apply these things to our hearts today. And Lord, if there's a sinner here today who is lost and undone, it's my prayer that you would convict their soul of their sinfulness, that Christ alone and his death, his atonement, his resurrection is salvation if they'll have it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.